Good evening and welcome to I Spit on Your Grades. Uh, today we are tackling Australian horror. This is my pick this week because I won folk horror and rightly so. Um, you are listening to Faye and I am joined as always by Chris. Hello. And Mercer. Hello. So I went, I went all grainy grainy league gentleman character then I don't know what happened sorry it's been a long day what have you good folk been up to I'm asking like I don't know even though I do I've done some stuff we've gone and seen some stuff at the cinema recently we went and watched The Conjuring Devil Made Me Do It we've also seen A Quiet Place Part 2 Spiral obviously from our previous episode we're in and saw that and we also all three of us went to the In The Earth Q&A with Ben Wheatley at the absolutely brilliant showroom cinema in Sheffield that our good friend Rob Nevitt of So You Screen was hosting. Um, I do believe that Mercer wanted it to go on for longer. <laughs> so I really enjoyed the Q&A. I thought there were some really good performances in the film. I just felt like it felt its runtime and longer. Like it just feels very long. It wasn't my favourite Ben Wheatley film. Um, I think Kill List is way higher than In the Earth. But the thing about In the Earth is it does have an interesting concept in terms of a story. Um, it probably, in my opinion, could have been executed a tad better, but that's just me. Honestly, like, if you'd have took about 20, 20 30 minutes off it, I think I'd have enjoyed it a lot more. Mm. That worked really well for me because I had 85% enjoyment, 15% nap time. So <laughs> I'm glad you got your money's worth in nap coins. Nap coins, the next big thing, everyone. Also, uh, this week it was announced that Celluloid will be hosting a horror all day in July with some uh, motherfucking classics. Uh, got Alien and From Beyond, which I've never seen. So looking forward to that. Evil Dead and Hellraiser. That's the one. Hellraiser. Thank you. If you want to go, you can't. It's sold out. <laughs> Depend on COVID restrictions. Hopefully, by the time the event is supposed to be on, these COVID restrictions should have lapsed. So hopefully there'll be more tickets nearer the time. So keep an eye on celluloid screams social media to see if there's any more tickets become available nearer and they have also announced today as well that they're doing a i'm going to call it a smackdown is, is that what the same tournament of terror my apologies tournament of terror um where they have a handful of classic films uh that we all love apart from it follows we don't love that one but that's the only one um and they are pitting them against each other so that come october the the favourite, the ultimate winner, will be decided and shown alongside. Sorry, I just going to Mercer's got a quizzical look like this sounds familiar. Like he's heard this format, then put to a Twitter vote somewhere before. Yes, I do. Yes, I did have that quizzical look. Um, but that sounds fun. Mm. Um, I don't know what the films are, though, so I didn't see the live stream, so... Let, let me tell you, I'm not going to tell you all of them because there's loads of them, but let me tell you... Hey, um, Oh, and a selection, an apéritif of these films. Uh, Scream. Okay. Carrie. Okay. The Fly. Okay. Exorcist. The Fog. It follows. What? 
Amateur Horror, The Guest. There's loads Ooh, of them. You got, yeah, there's there's going to be some big films, because it's head-to-head, there's going to be some big films going home early. By the time this episode comes out, we'll have had probably five or six days of the polls, and the first poll they're opening with is The Guest versus Amateur Horror. So one of them is going out straight at the get-go. Wow, that is tough. That's a tough one. Wow. What they should have done is the guest in it follows, so we could have got rid of it follows immediately. Um, they were picked at random. In the great history of FA Cup style match drawings, Polly and Rob drew them out of a bowl. I want to make a public statement that if it follows wins, there'll be three people not going to celluloid <laughs> because we won't be going. So if you want to see our ugly faces, don't let it follow us win. And now if it does win, I'll feel really bad about what people think about us. Mm. And and just before we move, just before we move on with the episode with our best Aussie horror, I will just say sorry for no episode last week. We were relaxing and recharging with the paddling pool and some beers. But also, don't think we don't love you. I am missing the England versus Scotland Euro group game tonight as we record this. So that's how much I love you. And Mitch Bain, previous guest Mitch Bain, I'm sorry Scotland lost so heavily. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say he's been going on about this all day. He hasn't. He's been very restrained about it, which makes me think he's saved up all for this episode so that he can load it. No, I'm, I'm raring to go with our Aussie horrors. We've got some great picks for this. Okay, so before we go into the uh, our selections this week, we're just going to give you a little bit of feedback of uh, what everybody else kind of thought of Aussie horror. Um, is it good? We don't know. You'll find out now. Darren Gaskell on Twitter said, it might not be horror in the usual genre sense, but Waking Fry is bloody terrifying. Never seen it. Me neither. Nope. Scared Sheepless wanted to say that she recently fell in love with Lake Mungo. Mm-hmm. Other than that, the Babadook and Hounds of Love are great. Then in a separate tweet, probably in panic, um, she said, oh, and obviously an ideal host. Um, <laughs> and some of the other titles like Waking Fly, um, she's never watched because she can't do kangaroo cruelty. I did point out at this point that she shouldn't watch Wolf Creek 2, but apparently that's like CGI kangaroos, so we're all right. That's not that's not real kangaroo death. CGI animal slaughter, no problem. Fine. It's good. Um, interesting, though, that she picked the Babadook, which is obviously a tortured child, and that's also cool. <laughs> we'll get on to that, kid. <laughs> or more <laughs> we won't. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. Um Saltier Popcorn, very, very, this week, gave us a lot and just said Wolf Creek and the loved ones. Maybe that's yay, maybe that's nay, I don't know. We've got a a special coming from Saltier Popcorn next week on the results show, though. Dr. Laura McIntyre um, also said this was difficult, but it's a tussle between Lake Mungo, Waking Fry and the loved ones but would probably pick Lake Mungo if they had to choose. Uh, we got a bit of an Uber. Uh, I'm not sure if they're a new listener, but they're definitely newly interacting with us, which is Dan Popomatic. 
Um, not, not a newbie for listening, I don't believe. Damn Popomatic, Waking Fright, maybe the most tense I've been watching a film. It's unrelenting. Um, and also they'd like to add Razorback to the ones already suggested. And then Video Nasties also came back just to say this was interesting. Favourite Aussie horror? I have to say there are horrifying Aussie films I'm a big fan of. Waking Fright, The Nightingale. But as far as Aussie horror films, I can't think of any I love. For example, I found The Babadook very underwhelming. Let's hope that we can change his mind with our picks because we do have what I believe are three bangers this week. Well. Yes. And we should probably say as well, all great films suggested, but this week we have only gone with our three pure late down to work commitments and time um, and trying to fit things in. Yes. So, um, but we have picked at least one really good film each. Well, anyway, I'm going to move on to my pick. So uh, much to the delight of some of the people who've interacted with us this week, I have gone for two, 2009, 2010's The Loved Ones because, to me, it is the best Australian horror ever made. And, yeah, I'm talking over Wolf Creek, Wolf Creek and any other shit. It's amazing. Um, if you've not seen it, the story centres around a girl called Lola who invites Brent to the prom and he rejects her because he's going out with Holly and... Lola can't take this. She can't let it lie. So she decides to flip, as we find out she's done before, and get her dad to kidnap Brent and tie him up at her house and make him her prom king. It it's insane. The loved ones like I, I read. I, I get a lot of films that blow me away. I'm going to say I rarely have a film that blows me away. That's a lie. I get a lot of films that blow me away. But Love Ones on first watch was just amazing. It's just as good every time you watch it. The performances are amazing. It never dips in quality. It's consistent the whole way through. It's consistently good. And, oh, it's mightily uncomfortable in places. Like the relationship between Lola and who's just called Daddy, and he calls her princess. It's very incestuous and it's very evident. And I, I can't, oh, there's a scene in particular where she's changing into a prom dress that he's bought her. And you can see the shame of what he feels. Oh, I hate it. It makes me so uncomfortable. Um, and in typical fashion for me, this is quite a teen film. And I like a lot of teen films because they're just fun. But this is, this is nasty fun. This is, it's nasty. It's a nasty, nasty piece of work, basically. And it feels like, like most of our picks this week, maybe not Chris's, but it, it has that kind of heat attached to it. And when you watch an Australian film, I think, it, no, not heat in that way, Mercer. <laughs> um, I think it, temperature-wise, like hum, humidity-wise, I think you feel it a lot with Australian films. You feel that that sweatiness but that dryness at the same time and it adds to the atmosphere in any film that you're watching and I think Loved Ones has it in that as well plus watching it this time I did notice that the wallpaper in Lola's house does look a lot like the shining carpet and I'm absolutely sure that's no coincidence that's got to have been put in there um I'd love to hear your guys thoughts on the Loved Ones 
if you have a name? The loved ones um, is quite possibly one of my all-time favourite films. Um, and this pains me every time, Fair, because you always pick, like, the film. So uh, quite often there's, like, a couple of films that I've got, it's this one or this one, and then you pick one, and I'm like, oh, great, at least it's going to be in the show. But then it's like, oh, fuck, I'm actually going to win there. Um, <laughs> but you do this all the time. But, no, it's one of my favourite. Like I said, like you said, the first time we saw this um, was at Fright Fest 2010, our first Fright Fest. It was the last film of the night. It had been a long day. Your bum's aching like fuck by end of day anyway. You kind of just, you need a film that's going to keep, like, pick you up. Um, and they don't always get it right, let's be honest. Yeah. The Loved Ones, like the Loved Ones came out absolutely buzzing. It, one, of, one of my favourite cinema experiences, just watching that film with the crowd. And then I, I waited quite a while before I rewatched it. Mm. Because I had that fear of it's I enjoyed it so much that maybe I only enjoyed it because of the festival. Right. And I watched it on my own. I'm just like, no, it's amazing. Robin, Robin McLeaver or McLevy, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but her performance as Lola is one of the most twisted, demented performances that I've seen. She's just so good at it. And there's parts when you feel like I know she's like the villain, but like she's being brought up that way. She's well, being brought up to get what she wants. To, to be honest, there was a lot of this, and there has been before for me a lot not not a lot of confusion, but some confusion over the relationship between Lola, Daddy, and Bright Eyes. Like, are they all? Is it a mother-father situation in her? And I picked up this time, she just said, say, and goodnight, mommy. So it is a mom in it. But um, y- you say she's been brought up like that. I think daddy plays to her. So he yeah. plays along to her. He gives her everything she wants. But she's still, even with that, she's still clearly the villain. There's no... There's no arguing with it. She is clearly the... I know we do a lot of these and we go, oh, yeah, but they're kind of the villain, but then again, you can understand what... No, she is so absolute... I'm waving my arm for dramatic effect. She is so clearly the villain. We are not getting into this again because I know what you're fucking referring to. We're letting that slide. But I see Mercer's point because we stand a good female villain and we like it. Yes, and even though she is a villain, and she's the she's a lovable villain. She's twisted. She's demented. She's also very perverse with her own father. Like she does, she does say to him, "It's been you all along, that I've been searching for a prince, but it's always been you." And you know, she wants that relationship to be somewhat different. Yeah. Um, the, everything about her is wrong. You're right. She is a villain. Uh, but I love her. She she only wants that relationship though because he gives her everything she wants. So if these are the and this is not the way you should form a relationship, by the way. This is not the way you should be picking your partner. But if those other boys had given her what she wanted and you know, maybe gave her attention and whatnot, then she'd be looking at them in a different light. He's the only person who gives her what she wants every time and gets her exactly what she wants. And that's the only reason she wants him. 
He's, yeah. But he's a bigger villain, I think, the dad. Because, yes, he's doing what he is for his daughter, but he also did what he did to Bright Eyes. And that's where I'm confused. Is Bright Eyes, like, the the female version of Brent and all the other people who will be kidnapped? Is she the last one that like, kidnapped and controlled and got pregnant? What's likely is that they were married and then baby Lola comes along and he's like, she's like, what, you want to do your daughter? That's disgusting. And goes against it. And then she gets the drill in the head and the hot water on the brain. This is Taylor's oldest time. <laughs> it's just, I mean, it's disgusting. It's a disgusting, disgusting situation. Um, he, the da- yeah. dad, dad is, as you say, he's, he's also one of the villains. He is calm throughout. Where she is hot-headed and me, 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 he is absolutely level the whole way through. Because of hormones. She's a, those teenage years, they're running rampant. Yeah, yeah I know, but he's also, a clear, he's also a stone-cold killer. But he is just mm-hmm. absolutely no... Apart from his emotion with her, he's just abs- he plays it absolutely level. Let The scene when Brent escapes, and normally you'd expect panic when he actually makes a break for it, Sheer, slow, plodding, calm nature. And when he goes out of the car, turns the lights on, slowly trying to track him down. Whether they've See, obviously, they, I would say they've been through this before, but they lost one earlier. So it's not like they're, they're completely adept at what they're doing. And like that scene, especially where he gets into the tree, you, you see Lola's manic nature more so than any, any other time. She sees this as a game. She's loving it. She wants to knock him down. She's getting excited at the prospect of him hurting himself. And, you know, he just falls onto the car, which I'm surprised didn't kill him anyway, if I'm honest. And I understand there's, he's like, oh, daddy's got a car and there's a big wide expanse that he could chase me down in. But would, who goes, right, I'll hide in this tree. This is clearly the smartest place to go. A guy who's just literally being tied up and tortured and panicked and disorientated. But uh, conscious enough and smart enough to escape, but, but then he, dumb enough and shocked enough to hide up a tree and think that's a good way of. There was nowhere else to go. The, the car was literally coming to the tree. There was nowhere else for him to go. I'm just saying, I'm not sure what he expected to actually happen in that scenario. Are you saying he deserved it? Is that what you're saying? I'm not, I'm not saying he deserved it, no, because when we meet Brent, and uh, obviously we have the first scene when. We have the car crash when his dad dies, which, as you were saying, is clearly linked into the later film because it's one of Lola's previous partners mm-hmm. who's actually managed to escape that we find out they swerved to avoid in the middle of the road. Yeah. But after after his death, one of our main interactions with Brent is when he's free climbing up the side of that, that mountain face. And you have him there when he's hanging on and he's leaning back and he's got his hair blowing in the wind, and he looks like he could just let go and end it all now. And then his foot slips, and he absolutely shits himself in his scramble to get back up onto the mount- mountain face and back up mm-hmm. into safety. So for all his self-harming, worries me, life is worthless stuff he's got going on earlier, he's clearly desperate to survive at all costs. And that obviously comes into play 
during when he when he's I mean we're getting ahead but when he's throwing down the pit that does come into play there because you know that one for survival he does anything he'll climb on bodies to get out and get back to his family so yeah I mean the, the, the thing with loved ones as well is you know not meaning to sound basic but fuck me like the situations and gore in this film are just ridiculous like the horrible like you wouldn't even like scratching a heart onto someone's chest and then throwing salt on it just feels horrible but at its core as well it's got I don't want to say it's got a message of grief behind it and how everybody deals with grief differently because you you don't only see Brent you see how like you know Lola's relationship with her dad and you see how um his best mate who goes out with the goth girl she's lost a brother who turns out to be the one that they swerved to avoid on the road and he lost his dad so everybody's dealing with some sort of shitty situation in their own way and so you know like goth girl goes out and gets drunk and the mother just shuts herself away and I, I find it's quite a lead film if you sit back and take a look at it I'm not sure if we need goth girl's story arc because it comes, it comes across as a bit of a stereotype with wild child goth getting stoned and partying. I understand what it's aiming to do and why it's there. I'm just not sure we need it. It feels slightly just to pad out the running time and the fact they felt they needed another story arc. I love the loved ones, but I see what you're saying with that, Chris. Um, I think outside of uh, Brent, his girlfriend and his mom. Like Jonathan and um, I've got a name, but the goth girl. Um, their story does feel almost quite like separate to the rest of the film, focusing on that prom and their relationship. Um, so I do see what you're saying there. I think the part there for comic relief, in terms of how they're doing at the dance and stuff like that, especially his best friend. And, and to be fair, with how brutal Love Ones is, it probably needs it. But at the same time, I think it's to show Lola's chain reaction of what she started. You know, she, her and her dad tied up the guy who got loose and the father got killed. And it, it's just all interconnected. It's all her. It all leads back to her. And I think that's why she's in there so that it can show. It doesn't just affect the people that she ties up. It affects everyone in the community. And they are quite a close-knit community as well. Like, you know, the, the cops know, the cop knows everybody. He's willing to get up out of bed at drop her a hat and go and help people. So they all know each other. So it's not just one person she's affecting. Yeah, I completely get what you're saying with that as well, Fair. <laughs> you're both right. No, I, I, now that you've said that out loud, that makes sense. But I will say, though, is I, didn't, I never saw them as, com like, in that disco, I don't see them as comic release. I see that as really quite sad. I do um, too. But I like think him especially, he's, I think he, because he tells a lot of jokes and he cracks wise. And I think that's, sorry, that's what I meant by like the comic relief of it. She's along for the ride, but more him than her. You say about, cut it, about carving initials on people. Let's bear in mind, this is with a fork as well. It's not like it's a no, nice sharp knife she's in this with. It's a fork that she then throws salt into the wounds. There's an there's a yeah, symbolism for you. And again, that that kind of you know sadistic personality comes across in that scene as well, where she's just flicking a bit of salt on at first, and then just takes the top off and launches the whole thing on. It's horrible. Misses most of it. <laughs> she does miss most of it, yeah. Um, which I think is also good. 
I quite like that because it just it makes it look more believable than it like fuck I've done it wrong oh well um I um I find Lola I love Lola but she what she's doing initially you kind of get the impression that she's doing it for love but she literally doesn't give these people a chance she does it to have fun and torture them um which is quite disturbing and she really does like to just play with them. I think mm-hmm. the whole thing you're looking good is um it's horrid. The way she's like suck my finger, suck it. And you're like, oh this is vile. Can you imagine? Like just flip it round. If it were a male character doing it, it feel like it, it feels dirty, doesn't it? Um it's just dirty. Chris made a like peep it. show joke at that point. Do, Do I, I suck mummy's finger? finger? But um, yeah, as well, and, and the scene where he wants to go to the toilet and she kneels in front of him, it's degrading. I mean, I, I know he's doing it to try and break free, but the, he's then got this added pressure of, if you don't pee, we will hurt you, because then we'll know if you're telling the truth or not. I was at Download once and some bloke opposite in the cubicle opposite me said hi, and I couldn't piss before Billy Talent. I don't <laughs> need that kind of added pressure. He's <laughs> stage fright and a half. But you know, she she's like right, she's like right there to his penis. And it looks like she's enjoying it, but then she flips and that's it. And she's angry again. And then she's wanting to hurt him again. So yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Not for love, all for kicks. Yeah. It is all for kicks. That, that's that's a scary thing as well with it. Um I do like the the drilling method, um, just because I know they stole that from Dharma, good old Dharma. I'm sure he's he's managed to make it into our shows a couple of times, but yes, good old Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, but I do like that. Um, apparently, um, that's what she was told to research. Oh, it's Dahmer's like techniques to understand what he did and how that controls. Like you can control people with the um, what's it called, lobotomy, and like. But Dahmer used like chemicals, not hot water. Mm. I mean, I, I'm assuming hot water would do the same thing because you're not supposed to have water on your... Wouldn't it? Cook it, it. Just, yeah, like boil it, yeah. And I do like the the kind of like twisted homage to Texas Chainsaw at the end where, um, do you know, like when she's running down the road and Lola's running after it, it's almost like like Leatherface swinging his axe around. His axe is Chainsaw, <laughs> hence the title of the film. I do like um, that... Um, that- scene between Holly and Lola where they're fighting each other in the car and Holly's panicking to get out because it's so real there's like I mean the cho- the choreography of it is brilliant but yeah. it's just her falling out and just kicking her in the face and running yeah yeah and you can see like she looks like she Lola's proper rugging her hair around <laughs> I'm yeah. like that looks painful yeah and I do love um I do love that kind of when I know we've been all over with this one because it is I a good know. film. We love it when Lola gets over and then we get that shot, like distant shot of her, like crawling. And then you get closer, but you see like bones sticking out of her wrist and stuff. And she's like trying to crawl up to the car. You're like, this is brutal. Love it. It's such a good it, film. It is totally brutal. Um, yeah, there's, there's no point staying on one path with loved ones because there's just too many good bits to pick out. There's something constantly happening. So we haven't even talked about him having his feet hammered to the floor with a knife or the lobotomized former former I would say former boyfriends of Lola for the captives 
of Lola and Daddy who are eating flesh in the basement. Or Lola's daddy's death as he falls and quite spectacularly and I think he said cheerfully, that's not the way I read. And gets gets what he deserves as he gets eaten alive by the lobotomized former partners downstairs. Yeah. There. No, I think that, that that switches Lola as well into something far more animalistic because she's you know she's lost the the prince as it were. Um, so I think when when you see her after that scene, she's a lot. She's violent to start with, but she's she's like rabid after that. She's you know she's like I'm going to go and stab your mom in the neck. I'm going to do what you did to my dad sort of thing. I'm like, fucking hell. <laughs> You're just running out there covered in blood and you are not giving a shit. Who knows it? She does not give a shit. She also, doesn't... what's uh, key to this film is it's the best use of a song in any film ever. Absolutely. I don't know what it's called, but Am I Not Pretty Enough? Is it be like, I can't even not listen. Like, to that. That, that comes up in daily conversation with me. Um, like I've seen it to Carl quite a lot just because of of the loved ones. It's um it's by Lacey. No, sorry, Casey Chambers. I was gonna say Lacey Chambers, and I thought is that the last from Mean Girls? No, Casey Chambers. And uh, apparently it was quite a big thing because she she's like the equivalent of a, a really preppy pop star in Australia. Uh, so to use her song in a horror was a bit bit of a you know. Out there, choice. Thank you. But it's John Byrne, so it's to be expected. He likes to push his boundaries. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, yeah, I could talk loved ones all day and, you know, get me on Twitter or whatever, and I'll absolutely do that with you because I fucking love this film with all my heart. Um, I'm not going to give you an outro. If you've seen the loved ones, you know why this is worthy of this week's winner. So, you know, vote loved ones. Right, so moving on to my pick, then for favourite Australian horror. Uh, I have a feeling some people may suggest this isn't a horror film, uh, but for me, I completely view it as, um, I think a lot of people say it's more drama, but I'm like, yeah, it is a drama, but it's horrific and beautiful in equal measures. And um, I saw it at a genre festival, so it's it works for me. It's... 2013's Zach Hilditcher's These Final Hours. Mm. <sighs> Inhale. <laughs> so These Final Hours is a, it's it's an end of the world film, except it's literally set up as the world is ending and like there's nothing that's gonna happen. There's no there's no rescue. Um, everyone's gonna die. And you will know it. And it's in Australia. We've lost half of Europe already. And the Australians have been told, um, you've got like 12 hours left to live. That's it. Um, So what we do is we follow James, played by Nathan Phillips, who decides that he doesn't want to feel death. And he's going to his friend's big end of the world party so he can get off his face and in the world with surrounded by his friends, drugs, drink, and his actual girlfriend. Um, when we meet James, he's with another woman um, who breaks the news to him that she's pregnant. And he still goes, fuck it, I don't want to deal with this, I'm off. And then we get to watch James's journey as he travels to this party 
and the breakdown, the very quick breakdown of society, the, the horrible nature of human beings and the desperate nature of human beings when they're presented with your world's going to end. And along the way, he rescues a young child called Rose who's being kidnapped by a couple of, I assume, paedophiles. Um, they don't explicitly say it, but it's obvious what they're going to do to to Rose. And then he learns a few life lessons from Rose. Um, and it's beautiful and horrifying. Um, it's God. This 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 is one of them episodes where I, I just gush for things. Um, this is also possibly one of my world's most favorite films. It hits such. The first time I saw this was actually a couple of years after it was released at Fright Fest. Um, so it played late, which is normally a bad sign for a film that's made in 2013 to not play until 2015. I think that would have been a bad sign, but I didn't know that at the time. Anyway, I watched this film and I came out, I were almost in tears. The first thing I did was phone my mum up to tell her I loved her because I hated the idea of what we are as human beings and what would happen if the world was going to end. <laughs> and yeah, it just struck a really emotional chord with me. I saw it after you um, at Celluloid and I just sat there mesmerised throughout the whole thing. And I, I did cry at the end. Um, I, the thing about these final hours is, it's like you said, it, there's no escape. It literally is, they are going to die. So you can't go anywhere bar than the route that they take. And it, it kicks off into it straight away. Like we in about a three minute period you see like every different reaction that you could think you'd see you know you've got people who are just happy to go out there and just start killing people uh, pedophiles who are just happy to take children some people have decided to kill themselves it's mental mental scenes and it, I do think it's a horror because I think it's it's horrifying to watch it's horrifying to see that shit yeah it's it's definitely a horrifying watch um and I've said this before on previous episodes, one of the things I love to watch is humans react to things like end of the world where they can't get out of a situation. So like a breakdown in, in like social acceptance and norms and behaviours is, it always fascinates me because, you know, every I think you spend your life doing that, oh, if this was to happen, um, but you never know how, anyone is going to react when they're presented with a situation. So yeah. I love to see when other people present that to me on how they think people will react. And the worst thing for it is, is we always think that humanity will be disgusting. And I think they're right. I do think we would be disgusting. And I do think that, you know... To an extent, yes. I agree, but I, I said to Chris when we were watching it, it's um, it's funny how, is it James, the main character? Yeah. It's funny how James is like, religion doesn't exist, I don't give a shit, I'm going to go to this party and get off my face, but right to the end, he's doing the right thing, he's still living by decent morals, which everyone else, well, majority of people just seem to have thrown out the window, but he's one of them who, who flips on it. That's exactly it. Even even though nothing's going to happen from what he does, ultimately 
there are good that's a simple story of this while there are people who will just absolutely lose their minds even through adversity there are good people out there who will strive it, it might take them a while they might go several detours around on the way and have to learn what's going on around them and understand what they actually want out of life there are good people who will get there in the end and will do the right thing mm. it's a it's an uplift his character arc is hugely uplifting by the end of it even as the world ends he's still cheered by the fact that he has actually gone back and done the right thing yes he's, a, he's an actual character that um you root for um throughout i think even though he's a dick as you as like his relationship with rose and his willingness to help rose even though he kind of puts it off wants to get rid of her he never wants to just abandon her which, like you said, it's actually a pointless and thankless task, what he's doing, because she's going to die. Mm. He's going to die. And if he don't yeah. get where he is, he's going to die with her, basically. Well, what he wants. Saying about abandoning her, that scene, he's in, the, he's in the car ready to go. It's telling the fact she knocks on the, she knocks on the window. He was nearly out the door. <laughs> that is true. Um, but no, I think... I think watching their, their, their relationship as well, because it's quite odd because, you know, we're in a world where they would never have met. They're two very different people and they're both going through two very different things. And the only thing that's uniting them is this kind of end of the world drama um, and the fact that he rescued her, I guess. Also, just to point out again, I think this is like, this is another hammer to the head film. Um we I see we seem to be picking these quite a lot, like Midsummer Kill List, this um, he whacks one in the head with a hammer, which is amazing. It looks really good as well. We've got hammer fetish, clearly. Whoa, 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 there's, some, there's just something really satisfying about a funk when it comes yeah. to a hammer blow. There is, it's a it's a dull sound. It's not like yeah. a gunshot. It's a dull funk, and there's something really satisfying about that sound. Well, it's also as when we went to see in the earth at the night, Ben Wheatley said, with a hammer, it's totally believable. It's like you see someone like getting shot in the head or whatever, and you're like, oh, someone getting shot. You don't see a gun that often. You've got a hammer accessible in every house. So we, yeah. we've all seen the something with a hammer, so we all know the pain that a hammer can cause. But yeah. The dull pain, yeah. I love the fact it's got, we've got one accessible. Yeah, we'd have to find it. It's somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Give me half hour to locate it, and yeah, I'll do some damage. That's the state of our coal house. That's all it is. Um, well, not coal house basement. Anyway, um, obviously, when he picks up Rose and he's taking her along the journey to go, where he's, you know, he's going to find his girlfriend. You think you've seen all of scummy human life that you can. I mean, on the way they stumble upon a family who are just. I mean, to be fair, that. This guy who they meet, he wants to do the right thing and he wants to get rid of the kids before it hits so that they feel no pain or whatever and ask him to do it. And it, it's just also horrible. But when they turn up at that party, that is my worst nightmare. I cannot imagine being anywhere furthest away from that when the world's going to end. It's absolutely awful. The fact that you open up these gates and it's just everyone partying and getting off the face and playing Russian roulette. And shit like that, raping, fucking killing. It's mental. Because we're dicks as human beings. I'd love to go to a massive party. Um, that I, Again, something that I relate to with this film is that, like, 
James, so especially probably when I saw this in 2013, I was a very different person and I would have wanted to partner rather than be com compass mentis or whatever the thing is and die. So I'd rather have been off my face and I'd have done exactly what he'd done. In my mind, I'd have been like, if my friends are partying, I'm going to a party and I don't really care. Um, so I, I really get on board with it, but we are dicks. And I would love to go to that party until um, you actually then realise that nobody, like these people, especially when you're like the kind of people who are just partying and taking drugs, these people aren't really your friends and they don't, they're not, you're not really a part yeah. of their life. Yeah. You're just somebody who is there doing drink and drugs. You could be anywhere. They have, or they could be anywhere. They have absolutely no idea you are even there. Is that everything? They could, they could be in Australia as far as I know. They could be on Mars as far as I know for what's going on around them. I did say though, like if it was the end of the world and you were at a party for whatever reason, you would actually take this as your opportunity to try crack or something, wouldn't you? Like heroin, you'd, you'd take the opportunity to do it because what's it going to do? If it kills you, it kills you before you die from the blast anyway. So, you know, fill your boots. Would you do it right before it was due to hit though so you didn't lose, say, 11 and a half hours of your life? Or do you try it early so you can go, right, I've tried crack, coke, wherever. Yeah, try, try it early. Red, try to okay. But what if you do one early and you die early? Then you wait. Then you die early. Hours. You die early. It's fine. You, you're not going to be alive when the bang comes. So, well, I said the bang, you know, the meteor, whatever it is. You're not going to be like, it's not going to make a difference. Why not, just pick, why not just pick one and try it like 10 minutes before it's. Because no. what if you don't enjoy it and you spend the last 10 minutes you're freaking out? The matter. <laughs> Seriously, don't do drugs, people. Uh, God. I'm just saying if it was the end of the world, that's all. End of the world, I think, you know, you just tell everybody what you think about it. No, would you? Because oh, do you really want to die being a dick? And what if no. the world doesn't end and you have to go around apologising to everyone? But True. it is going to end. <laughs> it is going to. Oh. Anyway, jumping back to the fact that we're at this party, um, there's a couple of things in this this particular scene or this area of film that I love. So first of all, I'm going to talk about this weird um, Mandy's mum. So the Jezebel. woman who thinks... It's Jezebel. She's from the film Jezebel, which if you haven't seen Jezebel at the end, it's awful when she turns around, she goes, it's Jezebel. There's something sad about this kind of wanting Rose to be Mandy. Um, and it's quite disturbing. But then there's something she drugs her, and I don't, I don't get it. Like she wants, she's wanting to kill her daughter. I, in my mind, she's wanting to kill her before the end of the world. And Maybe I think she, that's what she's doing, right? I thought she was wanting to stay. So if she had a drug, she'd be under her control. I don't even uh, think that. I think, I think she's, I don't think she wants to kill her, but I think she's trying to give her something to take, take the edge off. I think it's a, I think it's a case of a mothering thing going. Look, just take this, and you won't feel anything. Rather, but in a turn in a completely, absolutely creepy, batshit way. That scene is fucking awesome. When she's underwater, that she just turns and she's just swimming. To Mandy's mom is just swimming towards Rose, and Rose is just like shit. Um, I think that's an amazing scene. But 
the real star of this part is Catherine Beck as Vicar. So her character is fucking deplorable. She's horrible. Like she's so selfish. It's so funny because she calls James selfish. Yeah, James selfish because he won't have sex with her because yeah. he can't get it. And then he breaks down and says, I've just been to my sister's. Uh, I found her dead. I found her husband dead. And I've, I've seen the kids are buried. I'm like not in a good place. And then she again turns around and she goes, why have you told me that? You're so selfish. It's like, well, no, that's selfish. Uh, but there's also, when she gets down into that bunker, this manic desperation of this belief that she will survive, but yeah. knowing that she's, you know, and I think that's just so intense. Her performance gets so intense. And she flips her performance around from initially when it started, I was like, well, she's a bit pants. By the end, when she's like got this like deep guttural voice, I was like, fuck me, this is killing me because this is brutal to watch. Yeah. Brutal to watch. And then again, she, even though she said to him, I'm going to kill myself and I'm going to kill you if you don't stay, when she gets upstairs and sees him arguing, with her brother and trying to get Rose away, she does the right thing. She ultimately goes, do you know what? I'm going to let you go and do yeah. what you need. I'm going to let you take this girl and get out of here. This, you don't want to be here. And you could have just shut him. She could have shut herself. And she maybe, went, no. Maybe she's still got this idea that she is going to survive. And she's like, well, you go then. I'm going to be all right. So I'm going to survive. And just... First split a second, just imagine in like, you know, probability wise, it's ridiculous, but imagine they did survive in that bunker, then you would be left with Vicky roaming Australia. <laughs> probably be dead. <laughs> then like kangaroos and stuff, which she is verbid. It's little like, nah, 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 vile. Um, which you mentioned that, but obviously if you looked carefully, there were no air vents in that bunker, so no. they would pretty suffocate quite quickly um the three of them also i hate to think of this but like if it were just vicky and a brother like how are they going to procreate afterwards because i won't go in that brother. far the, the thing the thing i like about that scene as well with the brother who turns up in uh chris's pick by the way um the thing i like most about him is he wants to show james what he's done in the bunker and he sees it as some sort of den like it's all the game of player like i wanted to show him i want to show him how cool it was like it's not fucking playtime, mate. Your face is going to burn off. You know? It's horrible. Also, obviously, Rose is now um, all drugged up, potentially going to die. And it's interesting that James's first reaction is to try and save her, to get mm-hmm. her out and save her. And um, I think this is probably where I cried every time I've watched this film, when he goes to his mum's. Oh, yeah. Um, because there's something about, you like, the way that the characters are set up, you know he's a fuck-up, and you know he only really turns up when he needs something. Mm-hmm. Um, done it again. Um, but this time he's now done it knowing that he's going to tell his, like, potentially tell his mum that his, his sister's dead, but then doesn't do it and lets her live thinking that she's still out there and trying to survive. Um, but there's this awful... Like right at the end of their scene, like they're having a talk on conversation, and it gets me every time, and I don't know why. When she goes, um, I've done, I've already done this. I've already said goodbye to you um, a number of times. Why did you have to show up? 
and I'm like, God, this is horrible because in a mind, you just get this image of a obviously saying goodbye and being at peace with that, but then him coming kind of re reignites that that the idea that she's lost her son, but she's really going to lose him now, and it, I don't like it. Oh, all that part of it is absolutely harrowing, but I think at the same time she is happy that he came because mm. she leaves. You know, she, you can see that she wanted that last interaction and she got it. So I, yeah. I think I think she quite likes that. And I think he's happy he's come as well. And he, he's only done that because of Rose. Mm. Um, and again, like this, this, this thankless task of looking after Rose, it's almost like, like she's his guardian angel. That sounds so corny, doesn't it? But I had to say it, just in my mind. But it's, it's like she's this, this guardian angel that's come down to, to teach him like about love and care and responsibility um, a bit late. Hmm. in the game like he's going to die in like a few hours but you know um I mean and ultimately as well it's Rose who breaks the chain because when they get to her house and find that sadly her family have committed suicide without her she's torn up about it but she decides to stay with them and she's like no this is where I belong I'm going to stay you go back and do what you've got to do so she's the one who says I'm independent enough to do this now you've got me here that's all you need mm -hmm. to do got me here and this is what I'm supposed to be doing like mm -hmm. this is my where I should be and she kind of tells him you need to be where you should be and he knows where he should be I think as well we haven't said it that uh, for a child actress I think Rose is really good yeah absolutely um, I mean I, I I a portfolio since is amazing she's been in Spider-Man and everything she's done mm -hmm. really well yeah uh, but, but yeah she is fantastic in that role yeah. definitely really does carry that role off and again this is it. another really sad part of this film for me and I don't know why this part gets me every time when she when he when he, like she's like I'm staying and then he gets in car to go and she's like I'm gonna watch you until I can't see you anymore will you do the same for me and I'm like oh God, I can't do this it's horrible because like again it's that reality of like sh she's not stupid she knows this is the very last time we're ever gonna see each other and you know I want to see you to the very last moment that I possibly can. Yeah, it's that whole, I've got to let you go, but I don't want to, so I'm going to keep you in sight until I can't possibly keep you with me anymore. And yeah. It's, it's just a, well, it's a very rich kid's thing, chase after the car, driving. it's just to remind you that she's, she's not this full-grown adult who's made this choice. She's still just a kid dealing with the fact that she's left there and stayed with her dead family. Like when you, I mean, you know, like when you used to go to your nanans, I don't know if you guys ever done it, but when we'd drive away from a nanans, she'd always stay out front door and always wave until you got out of sight. Never went in before she'd seen you off, sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, just to talk about it quickly because I, I think we're coming up on time with it, but um, the thing that is like most impressive about these final hours is it's not there's not really any like massive set pieces in it but the way you can just put on a filter and just invoke this feeling of fucking baking heat is mental like obviously the, it gets more red towards the end as things are starting to come to a climax and whatnot but the whole feel of it the whole way through is like i said with the loved ones
it's that it's that sweaty hot kind of feeling that you get with it and it, it makes you feel like you find yourself sitting there finding yourself going shit and when he's driving to his girlfriend and the car sets on fire you just get to see how hot it is like there's dead birds in the street because they're just dropping down from the sky because they can't take the heat anymore it's scary i mean as someone who used to be terrified of the end of the world like to the point where i was sweating during melancholia um I'm over it now, but it's still terrifying to watch. Luckily, you're over it. It is, and you're right, that that kind of, that, it's probably for me, like, why it works so well, because even though it's an an unbelievable concept, the end of the world, and it's something that we're very far removed from, we do, like, like what we said about hammers, we understand heat and sweat and being uncomfortable in them situations. Um, And it does give that kind of vibe off it looks sweaty it looks hot it looks horrible and it looks like you don't want to be there Mm. that's really that's really important and this is like I said this is one of the few times I can honestly say when his car breaks down when I first saw this I was like no 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 no." (laughs) and then like and he starts running I'm like he's not going to make it and I never pretty much ever root for someone as much as I rooted for him. Now, under normal circumstances, if I were watching this film, I'd be like, it shouldn't have made it, he should have died on road, and that would have been more realistic. But in this one, I'm like, no, he's got to get back to her. And then her reaction when he gets back, I fucking love. Because it's it's not welcoming into arms, oh my God, I love you. It's like, you tossing, you left me. So yeah, it's, it's so realistic. I love it. And it's so self like, but I think it gives you that like final grasp of like how selfish he really was. Cause even then he's like, but I'm back now. I'm back. I've come back to you. And you're like, oh, you are really still quite selfish. Everything you've done, but you've still done this for you, not not for her. I don't know. I think he has done it for her. I think he's realized where he needs to be and where his priorities are. Yeah. But it just feels it still has an element of selfishness. Anyway, I don't matter anyway because he died. So don't matter anyway. Another reason why I love it because he dies, she dies, Rose dies, everybody dies. There's no sudden like rescue. There's no um well, we managed to bomb it or oh we've got some water that we can shoot up and rescue everyone. It's like it's, <laughs> I don't know how you. Want I love to. that you think water would stop it. I oh, shoot some water up there. It's fine. As it's coming over the sea, yeah, John, you are a bit dumb. <laughs> everyone there was everyone there was super soaker. <laughs> like that. Yeah. But like it, it doesn't it, it, it tells you at the start this film they're all gonna die. And it doesn't it doesn't try and surprise you and said no, they don't, and I love it. Agreed. Good. I'm gonna wrap it up then. Vote for these final hours because it's brutal in 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 its reality of human nature it's beautiful in the fact that we get to watch this character arc of someone who is ridiculously selfish becomes someone who learns about love and respect and it's stunning to look at and it's fucking emotional and any film that can have you like shit in your pants because of what's happening and then sobbing your eyes out the next scene like deserves to win. Okay, so it's my pick now for the best Australian horror. And for those who thought that Mercer's pick was too much of an absolute fun time 
and an absolute blast had by all. Don't worry, we're gonna we're gonna slow it down even further now with the equally brutal 2014's The Babadook from Jennifer Kent. Hold for applause. Nope. It's it's gonna come one day. It's fine. Break this down very quickly. So we have Essie Davis who's playing Amelia. Very early on in the film, we know find that her son Samuel, played by Noah Wiseman, was she was in labour with him on the way to the hospital when there was an unfortunate traffic accident in which Amelia's husband sadly passes away. We have open a few years later with the young Samuel, who has some behavioural issues, it's safe to say, but as we go through. And we find that along with these challenges she's facing with Samuel, we then have the mysterious character of the Babadook appear through a children's book. Is the Babadook real? Is it a study of grief and loss and depression and absolute tragedy? Yes. Yes, it is. Is it absolutely hard-going and brutal and dark and miserable and ultimately uplifting and restorative and you come out of it hopeful? Yes. Also to all those questions. And that's why I love it. How there's not many films where you can have that absolute brutal kidney punch, feel like crap, watch someone have their life tumbling around them and fall apart, and they come out the other side and you're left feeling, okay, maybe things will be better moving forward from here. And it's an absolute testament to the performance that Essie Davis gives as Amelia that you feel crushed for it every time, whether it's just the issues she's having with Noah, or sorry, she's having with Noah and Samuel to begin with, whether it's her dealing with the loss of her husband, whether it's her isolation from her employer, her family, and just the fact that life is absolutely grinding her down. But as I say, we come out of this at the end somehow not wanting to kill ourselves, and that's all the more power the Jennifer Kent's brilliant ending for this tale. I think Mercer would disagree with you there, but that's just Mercer's opinion on it. Um, I mean, I've, I've got a level. I hated Babadook when I first watched it. Like, I could not stand it. I felt it was another one of those films like Barbarian Sound Studio, like Monsters, where it was just completely missaltier in what it was. But then again, you know, back in day, I was tired and I was quite looking forward to giving it another shot, to be honest. And I'm glad I did because I did come out with a lot more positive, with a more positive outcome this time than I did initially. I think mainly the commentary, and I I said this to you guys before recording, on how we deal with mental illness and depression and anxiety comes to the forefront uh, when we start treating people like a burden. And that happens with her a lot in this film. The kid is still annoying as fuck. I'm not getting over that. I'm sorry. I I hate that kid. And I know you're not supposed to because he's got behavioural problems. 
but I mean, like you were saying, Chris, maybe that's the, the way we're meant to feel because that's how she's feeling that's, when she that's, has to deal with him. That's exactly my point. I think he's pitched perfectly. I I think you're supposed to genuinely feel like you just want him to shut up and you could actually physically hurt him. So you understand how her transformation and what she goes through later on. So you can go, normally you sit there and go, well, yeah, mum never do that to a kid. Can't imagine a thousand years. But after 80, whatever, by the time we kick in around 75 minutes of his constant fits and screaming and behaviour, and you're there, sat there going, yeah, you know what, if I was there living with this, I could completely see how, along with the other issues, how it could push you and it could tip you over the edge. And these things can happen. This isn't a false issue. This isn't something that doesn't exist in the world and she's made it up. There are real cases of parents killing their children. And you can understand here that with what she's going through, that, yeah, she could be pushed to that breaking point. It's still known as fuck, though. Oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Did you add in? Absolutely. Literally, I think, I think you've just done a very good job of um, explaining why he's a annoying little shit. But the reality is, even if they wanted to make him annoying... They kind of made him too annoying to the point where um, I want to turn the film off. And that's terrible. I, I One of my notes is, I hate this child. Um, and I know I shouldn't, and I've said this, I shouldn't. I hate this child. I hate his screaming. And I'm only 10 minutes into this film. See, I, although I say, although I may disagree with you there, I understand how you can feel that way because... Psycho Gorman feel exactly the same. Mimi, I know she's supposed to be pitched as annoying, the annoying little sister, but for me, she makes me want to turn the film off and just go, no, they pitched her so too too far that way that I've just lost any interest in watching her. I tell you, I hated more than the kid on this watch, and that's the sister. I think this her sister is horrible to her. She's so up her own arse, wanting to keep her life perfect. And she's got this imperfect sister that she just can't be dealing with and just, you know, writes her off as a problem, writes a kid off as a problem. I hate the sister in this. I think she's awful. So I, think, I think this is the point, though. So I think there's a difference between hating the character and hating the performance. Mm. So I don't like the sister but I think the performance is good. I don't like Samuel because I don't like Noah's Noah Wiseman's performance as Samuel. And I think that's what the problem is. I think potentially, if if we if it were recast, then you could you, you know there's there's the chance that I'd feel dif- different. Because I don't know. Thankfully, though, I will say this. Um, I think Essie Davis probably gives the strongest or one of the strongest performances out of all three of the films. Agreed, the yeah. She is absolutely incredible. That kind of, that broken, vulnerable, like, single mum struggling to deal with, like, a job, uh, that the repercussions of what happened to her, like, that, that ongoing grief and that resentment for her own child because of the fact that it's in her mind, it's his fault, the love of her life is dead. 
I've, I've not, I noticed as well that she kind of dresses for her personality. So obviously she's like really fragile. I'm, I don't want to say almost doll-like, but she, she, in the way she dresses, she looks kind of doll-like, like a porcelain doll. And I think, I don't know if that's like a comment on how fragile she is, but that's how it came across to me. Anyway. Well, it's, I mean, it's definitely like that. It's in the same way with the colour schemes. Because when we first meet her, that house is grey and dark. And by the time we get to the end scene, there is splashes of colour all over that place. There's all the cushions, there's the curtains, there's lightness all through that house. So, yeah, completely the way she dresses from how she starts and that beaten down, miserable, grey kind of look she's got to where she finishes with. Yeah, completely. I don't think there's a single thing there that Jennifer Kent hasn't thought is exactly what I need to make this shot work. I think, and for that reason, I think, you know, Babadook plays as, as a character, plays a second fiddle. It's like, you, it's, it's, it's not even needed as part of this. I mean, I know it's needed as part of the story, but it's not even, you could literally tell that story and it'd still be just as horrible as if you were to have something in your in your house as a monster, as a metaphorical monster. And I never understood originally either how the Babadook came about or where that book came from. And I forgot who said it, whether it was you or Bane, but um, basically she's a children's illustrator. So yes. the idea is that she's done it herself. She's written this book herself. And not, not for it, it wasn't meant to be seen by the kid, but he finds it. And then all of a sudden it brings to the forefront these feelings that she had, like these raw feelings she had when her husband passed away. And let's face it, the whole, there's that whole kind of, I wouldn't say ma not magically, but that whole kind of fairy tale slightly thing that the Babadook is essentially the troll under the bridge. It's the, the monster in the closet. Yeah. I mean, it's not because it's not just told through the story. The kid's a magician. He's, he's that he loves magic. He's the magician. There's that whole fairy tale magic edge running through that whole storyline. Mm. And I know you said, as you say, we could have done this without the Babadook, but I think you, for her to feel like she's also losing her mind and seeing his manifestations at the same time, I think that's why you need him there. See, I want to completely disagree. <laughs> With you, Chris. Sorry, I the idea of her losing her mind, um, and the visualization of the Babadook, I think is fine. I think the, I think, the Babadook was just presented too much to us as an audience to give it almost a sense of credibility or believability. Whereas if it had been more in the outskirts of, so like like her peripheral. So it was never like presented to us, but like presented to us as if she, you know, like shadow men, like side glimpsed it or something. Then I'd be more inclined to be questioning throughout, is this purely her, a, manif a manifestation of her depression and her grief and her un inability to handle this situation along with like her child. But by presenting it to us in the, in forefront, the forefront, it's almost like they, they, the presenting as a real thing and then towards the with the ending of the film where it's still presented to us that the Babadook exists 
well, uh, which I know again a metaphor for you know you never really truly get rid of like depression or grief. It's that's, always that's because for me was in a way to make it look like it's an an actual thing. That's the thing, yeah. Because say because for me at the end at the end when it's there, it's just manifestation. I don't think of it as a real even though that even though it's kind of presented as a real thing, I still just think it of a manifestation of her grief and her depression. So I don't see I see them as two things that can live side by side rather than it being just a creature on its own. I'm I'm not taking sides, but I would have to agree with Chris there if I'm quite honest. It's like she goes down to the basement to visit where all this stuff is. And you know that's where the memories are and she only go she only allows herself to go down there on certain occasions she's not constantly focused on it so the grief is still living down there it's still you know it's horrible in her mind when she has to deal with it but she now doesn't deal with it all the time which is fine and i would have appreciated like that would have made perfect sense if it wasn't for the fact that she fed it well so i don't i don't know about the worms i'll never understand. if someone can explain yeah. the worms to me please go ahead and do that because i don't understand the worms i don't so get this it is- so this is what I mean when I talk about the, it's almost as if in order for, and I'm not saying this is correct because I don't know, but in order for it to pass as a horror that they had to almost make the Babadook a real thing so that it became less uh, like a like a site, like a drama um, or, or, or a, a subject on mental health and grief because they did give it a, an actual monster. Uh, and if, if and this is what I'm saying, if they didn't have him in the forefront, if they didn't have that ball of worms sliding off on its own for us to see, then, you know, I, I would have felt a lot more in tune with her and her performance. See, I can I can still, for me, I can still use, see that as a metaphor for feeding grief and depression, just as her in her head feeding this grief and depression while the Babadook being a separate entity I don't I don't have that crossover I can see the two although I can I understand completely where you're coming from there so I'm not gonna argue with your view but I can see completely how you could read it that way but for me I don't no, I, I agree. I can see why you read it that way. But I mean, it's it's not the first. And you know what? I'm giving this a lot of praise to say that I really hated this when I first watched it because I have looked at it with fresh eyes. And it's actually an impressive film. But it's not the first, you know, it's not the first, it's not the last to do this sort of thing like Jacob's Ladder and most recently The Relic. They do do this thing where it makes you believe it is a monster and it isn't actually a monster at all. You know, it's, we can't tear it down for that. I, I wouldn't tear it down for that personally. It's different though because they're not. They, these other films then don't present it as a monster. Relic does. Whereas, I can't remember Relic well enough, <laughs> but this does. And I think one of the things as well with this, again, it's 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 more of a wish from me to have made me appreciate the film more. So because I didn't like the Babadook as a character. Um, and I don't like, I just don't like it. I don't like its voice. I don't like, I like how it looks in the comic, in the story, but I don't like it when we see it on screen. Don't know why. Um, it's, I don't very like it mi- it's very Mighty Boosh. It looks a lot yeah. like a Mighty Boosh character. Yes. I don't like the Babadook. So I wish that it wasn't like presented to us. But then there's also parts in the film where she floats or glides 
across the floor to her son, which is like her possession. There's the part where she jumps against the door like she's possessed. possessed. And that's, that's less like about grief and more about like something being inside her, which is what the Babadook says it does. But it's presented to us like that's a reality. That's not from her perspective. That's her actions. And I get that. And if you go into it looking solely on that level, that's what you're going to see. You're going to see these things that are misinterpreted because they are purposely meant to be misinterpreted. I mean, I think you are meant to think that it is a monster and it is a monster. It's just a metaphorical monster. And that's so when, also... you look, when you look at it on a metaphorical level, these things all make sense. Like the gliding, there were a scene in particular that I kind of related to. She has, um, she has a bit where the Babadook, I use air quotes there, pulls her from the bed and it's that literal being grabbed and not being able to grab hold or anything just drags her because it's taken her over and I've had many a dream where I've just been dragged out of somewhere and it felt and again with the floating like a dreamlike sequence because she's not in her own head she's sleep deprived you know she, she's hanging on and that's what that is to me but again this could be like a total interpretation an individual this, interpretation you got, you got to think this is also from Samuel's viewpoint as well who's seeing this grief and depression and this monster because he sees monsters everywhere at the start we know he sees monsters everywhere he looks at night and he sees monsters this grief and depression as a monster in his mum so the gliding and the jumping wall it's not her doing it per se it's what he sees she's doing as afflicted by this monster so two questions so or two things so first of all my question here is, so when Samuel's getting flung around the room, is that, are we are we saying that that's really the mother's actually physically doing that, but we're watching it as in from her perspective and her mental state is somebody else doing it? Yes. For, and then my second point is, I think the whole idea of um, Samuel and Amelia and that whole breakdown, it, I get the indication from the neighbour, um, Mrs Roach, she, when she comes around to the house, she says, I know it's a tough time of year for you. Um, so I get the impression that this is like like the pinnacle of her grief um, and, and her depression is around his birthday every year. So is the, the, the fighting monsters, the fact that he's prepared for them, is that, do we think that's because this is, it's approaching his birthday? Yeah, and because at that time of year, she tends to get the most down. She gets the most depressed. And when he's like, I'll save you, he wants to save her from this pit she gets herself into every year. And that's why she doesn't, that's why she never celebrates his birthday. That's why he splits birthday with, his, uh, with, with her niece, so that she doesn't have to deal with that day. I would say so, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Personally. I keep having to say personally, because I think this is one of them films where... You, it can think, be viewed from several different angles. Yeah, this is very much what you bring to to it is what you take from it kind of film. Yeah. And as I say, we everyone might not agree on what what the Babadook actually is, but I'm sure everyone will agree that the performances and the actual lessons and portrayal of grief and depression are quite frankly staggering and really, really impressive. I, I definitely had a new appreciation for it this time round. I, I'll be honest, this this isn't a film that I love, but like you, after watching it a second time around, I definitely appreciated it. Uh, and I think as well, 
as we age and we go through certain things in his life so you know we we grieve the things and we you know we you know in this society we've all had mental health issues um so watching a portrayal of that now be, allowing yourself to be vulnerable and and take that on board and actually have a better understanding of like how people do deal with these things because before it's always like I don't know like grief and stuff it's always been a part of most people's life they've lost people but I think like losing someone close to you kind of presents it differently because you, you've experienced grief in a different way and then you've also like you know mental health wise as we've got older some of the things that we might have struggled with when we were younger um we just put down to like well, we probably masked with drink or stuff like that. Whereas as you get older, you start accepting things. So I think, yes, it definitely opened up as a film to me. And I definitely took a lot more away from it the second time around. My, like I said, my gripes with it are not necessarily the story as such, other than the, the representation of the Babadook and how it's presented to us. Um, it's more that brat's performance. <laughs> That's the thing that ruins it for me. I just can't deal with it. And I have to tell you, honestly, I watch it and I just feel like I've seen performances from other kids in other films that have got like behavioral problems or, you know, temporarily think of Z and stuff like that. Like the child in that, like, is, I suppose, supposed to be an annoying so that we understand why his mother struggles. And I get it. And that kid's all right. Um, look at Ruby, Rose, not Ruby, Rose. Like, she's not annoying, but, you know, she's a child actress who manages to portray a character in a certain way. And I just feel that this role was performed wrong. And I know he's only a child, and I shouldn't say that, and that's terrible for, for me to say, but I just can't get past his performance. I understand why, completely. But at the same time... He's not like Rose where he's portraying her just being a child. He's portraying a child who's got behavioural problems, who's literally being cast out by anyone he comes into contact with. He's got no friends. His mother's having a breakdown. I understand you don't like the performance. I get that. But I don't think you should just pass it off as, well, compare him to other child actors when he's dealing with an entirely different role. He's an actor. Just do it right. Yeah, I'm talking. Good. I'm talking about the role. I'm talking about the role he's portraying. I I get why Mercer. I'm not disagreeing with you. He's an annoying little fuck. I, we all think that. Everybody thinks that. They were like a meme going round on Twitter where it said, um, "Show me a picture. A picture you can hear instantly." And it was that picture of him. And you know <laughs> that scream. You fucking know it right in your head. So I get it. But I just think I think it's a bit harsh to compare his his character to other child characters so there there we go <laughs> I think that's as good a place to leave it as any so I think we gave that a proof so we're going over so I'll just close close with this the Babadook an absolute staggering portrayal of grief and depression with an absolutely amazing performance from Essie Davis as Amelia. I think all three of our choices today have been absolutely brilliant. I've loved every one of them. And I'd be happy if any of you vote for any one of them. I think they're all worthy. But I hope you vote for 
the Baba Duck Duck Duck. <laughs> playing that like, oh, anyone can win, but please vote for me. But I'll be happy if anyone can win so that people vote for him because they feel sorry for him because they think he's humble. He's not, all right? He's not. Okay, so that's all three of our choices. So the loved ones, these final hours, and the Babadook. We'll put the poll out as normal for you to vote or for your favourite. So please vote and let us know why you picked the one you have. We do appreciate that feedback. If you want to get in contact with us, you can reach us on both Instagram and Twitter. We're at Spit Grades. We're at I Spit on Your Grades on Facebook. And should you want to email us for any reason, you can reach us at electricpossums at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the episode, then please don't forget to rate and subscribe because we really do appreciate it. And I guess that all that remains to be said is goodbye from me. Goodbye from Fair. And it's goodbye from both of you, I guess. And me. 